You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little bitch. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so simple? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the lion! Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Halloween is my favorite holiday, and horror is probably my favorite film genre if someone really pressed me on it. And if you're in L.A., people will press you on it, especially in job interviews for some reason. Because of this, it's not unusual for some kind of monster, murder, or mayhem to be gracing my various screens. I love October because it makes it oh so easy to get all of my horror fixins. Now that I'm doing this, I decided to dive even deeper into my love of all things horror with a series on Universal Studios's, then Universal Pictures' most famous movie monsters. Before we get into our main monster for this week, I wanted to give you some background on the horror film genre in general. The genre in its most primal cinematic form was the Phantasmagoria, a magic lantern show that originated in Paris meant to frighten and thrill audiences. When film came to be, George Millier pioneered the trick film, a silent movie that used special effects. While many countries, including Japan and Spain, made early attempts at the horror film, it would be German expressionism that would have the longest lasting impact on the film community as a whole. German expressionism gave the world, according to film critic Roger Ebert, the first true horror film with The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari in 1920. The film told the story of a scientist and his reanimated minion of chaos. Next to come out of Germany was Der Gollum Trilogy, a series of films about a golem, an anthropomorphic figure from Jewish folklore in which a being made from clay comes to life. These films, among several others, which came out of a nation's depression after World War I, would inspire an American studio to create their own versions of what would become known as the monster movie. Universal started by adapting the works of authors like Edgar Allan Poe and Victor Hugo in the early 1920s. Their first two films, 1923's The Hunchback of Notre Dame and 1925's The Phantom of the Opera, both starring Lon Chaney, while not making huge splashes at first, would lead a mere six years later to the creation of one of the most iconic movie monsters of all time. This week on The Tinsel Factory, we're covering the origins and history of the greatest bloodsucker of all time, Dracula. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. I am Dracula. Oh, it's really good to see you. I don't know what happened to the driver and my luggage and, well, and with all this, I I thought I was in the wrong place. I bid you welcome. Listen to them. Children of the night. 
What music they make. Unlike the monsters we'll be covering in the next few weeks, Dracula was based on a more real kind of monster. The man who would be Dracula, Vlad III, was born in 1431 in Transylvania into a Romanian noble family. His father was called Dracul, meaning dragon or devil in Romanian, because he belonged to the Order of the Dragon, which fought the Muslim Ottoman Empire. Dracula literally means son of the dragon. Vlad was born into a time of war in the Ottoman Turks and the Austrian Habsburgs and would spend a chunk of his early life imprisoned, first by the Turks and later by the Hungarians. Dracula's father was eventually murdered, while his older brother Mircea was blinded with red-hot iron stakes and buried alive. So, you know, a great time to be Transylvanian royalty. Over the 45 years of his life, Vlad Tepes would lose his throne of Wallachia and Transylvania twice, once to his own brother, but regained it both times. Vlad would earn the name Vlad the Impaler for his unconventional torture style, where he impaled his victims and of course left them on the stakes to rot. The mythos of Vlad, likely leading to his more literal blood-sucking counterpart Dracula, included that he on occasion would eat bread dripped in the blood of his victims. Despite all this, Vlad was deeply religious and surrounded himself with priests and founded at least five monasteries. Dracula was eventually killed in December 1476, fighting the Turks near Bucharest. He was beheaded and his severed head was displayed in Constantinople. Dracula was believed to have been buried at one of the isolated monasteries that he founded near Bucharest, though excavations of the monastery have never turned up a body. Now that you have learned what you have learned, it would be well for you to return to your own country. I prefer to remain and protect those whom you would destroy. You are too late. My blood now flows through her veins. She will live through the centuries to come, as I have lived. So, how did we get from Vlad the Impaler to Dracula the Vampire? Enter Bram Stoker. While not the first man to write a novel about a vampire, his was the one that most people associate with the modern notion of one. Bram Stoker was an Irish-born theater manager turned author, writing books to supplement his income while overseeing the Lyceum Theater in London. Stoker had spent many years traveling, though never to Transylvania proper, researching European folklore as well as vampire tales, being most influenced by author Emily Gerard's essay, Transylvania Superstitions, which included the myth of the vampire, though at the time they were known as strigoi, undead spirits that rise from their grave during the night to haunt villagers and feast on the blood of the living. The strigoi were known to be afraid of garlic and incense, though that didn't make it into Stoker's novel, and individuals whom feared that their village was being visited by a strigoi were known to grease their doorways and windows with garlic and made their children wear necklaces made of garlic cloves while they slept. Stoker was also, obviously, influenced by Vlad the Impaler, which, while inspiring the name for his novel, very little from the historical figure actually made it into the book, save for a little bit about Romanian history. Stoker later claimed that eating too much crab meat gave him the idea to write the story of a vampire king rising from his grave. Henry Irving, Stoker's employer at the theater, was whom the author based the mannerisms of Dracula on. 
Irving was known for being a less than savory individual and mocked Stoker's book, calling it, quote, dreadful. Dracula was published on May 26, 1897, and while it was widely enjoyed by readers at the time, it would be Universal Pictures that gave the book its second and longest life. By the time Universal purchased Stoker's novel, it had already been adapted into a couple of films without permission, first in a lost Hungarian film entitled Dracula's Death in 1921, and then again in the German film 1922's Nosferatu. Stoker's widow had sued the Nosferatu filmmakers over the rights successfully, and virtually all the prints of the film were ordered to be destroyed. Not successfully, as you can still watch it to this day. YouTube link is in the show notes if you're interested. The irony of this is that the character Nosferatu is the most accurate physical portrayal to the character described in Stoker's novel. Later, the book was developed into a stage play around the time the young Hollywood producer Carl Lemley sought to purchase the rights. There are spoilers ahead if you haven't read or seen Dracula in any form, but it is Halloween after all, and what's Halloween without a good scary story? I haven't read Dracula since I was about 12 or 13, and I definitely don't have time to reread that 400-page beast right now, so I lifted and summarized the following synopsis off my old friend and yours, Spark Notes. It's story time. Dracula is told through letters, diary entries, and newspaper articles. This format is known as an epistolary format. The events of the book take place between May 3rd and May 6th of the same year at the turn of the 19th century. Jonathan Harker, a young English lawyer, travels to Castle Dracula in Transylvania to conclude a real estate transaction with a nobleman known only as Count Dracula, despite rampant warnings from locals to stay away from the Count's mysterious castle. Frightened, but no less determined, Harker meets the Count's carriage as planned. The journey to the castle is harrowing, and the carriage is nearly attacked by angry wolves along the way. Upon arriving at the crumbling old castle, Harker finds that the elderly Dracula is a well-educated and hospitable gentleman. After only a few days, however, Harker realizes that he is effectively a prisoner within the castle's walls. Soon, Harker also realizes that the Count possesses supernatural powers and diabolical ambitions. Fearing for his life, Harker attempts to escape from the castle by climbing down the walls. Meanwhile, in England, Harker's fiancée, Mina Murray, corresponds with her friend, Lucy Westerna. Lucy has received marriage proposals from three men, Dr. John Seward, Arthur Holmwood, and an American named Quincy Morris, eventually accepting Holmwood's proposal. Mina visits Lucy at the seaside town of Whitby, where a Russian ship is wrecked on the shore near the town, with all of its crew missing and its captain dead. The only sign of life aboard was a large dog, and the only cargo is a set of 50 boxes of earth shipped from Castle Dracula. Not long after, Lucy begins to sleepwalk. One night, Mina finds Lucy in the town cemetery and believes she sees a dark form with glowing red eyes bending over Lucy. Lucy soon becomes pale and ill, and she bears two tiny red marks at her throat, for which neither Dr. Seward nor Mina can account. 
Unable to arrive at a satisfactory diagnosis, Dr. Seward sends for his old mentor, Professor Van Helsing. Suffering from brain fever, Harker reappears in the city of Budapest. Mina goes to join him. Van Helsing arrives in Whitby and, after his initial examination of Lucy, orders that her chambers be covered with garlic. For a time, this effort seems to stave off Lucy's illness. She begins to recover, but her mother, unaware of the garlic's power, unwittingly removes the odiferous plants from the room, leaving Lucy vulnerable. Seward and Van Helsing spend several days trying to revive Lucy, performing four blood transfusions to no avail. One night, the men momentarily let down their guard, and a wolf breaks into the West Denra house and kills Lucy. After Lucy's death, Van Helsing leads Holmwood, Seward, and Quincy Morris to her tomb. Van Helsing convinces the other men that Lucy has been transformed into a vampire like Dracula. The men remain unconvinced until they see Lucy preying on a defenseless child. They agree to follow the ritual of vampire slaying to ensure that Lucy's soul will return to eternal rest. While she sleeps, Homewood plunges a stake through her heart. The men then cut off her head and stuff her mouth with garlic. After this deed is done, they pledge to destroy Dracula. Now married, Mina and Jonathan return to England and join forces with the others. Learning all they can of Dracula's affairs, Van Helsing and his band track down the boxes of earth that the Count uses as a sanctuary during the night from Dracula's castle. Their efforts seem to be going well, but then, one of Dr. Seward's mental patients, Renfield, lets Dracula into the asylum where the others are staying, allowing the Count to prey upon Mina. As Mina begins the slow change into a vampire, the men sterilize the boxes of earth, forcing Dracula to flee to the safety of his native Transylvania. The men pursue, dividing their forces and tracking him across land and sea. Van Helsing takes Mina with him, and they cleanse Castle Dracula by killing the three female vampires within and sealing the entrances with sacred objects. The others catch up with the Count just as he's about to reach his castle, and Jonathan and Quincy use knives to destroy him. He's crazy! They're all crazy. They're all crazy except you and me. Sometimes I have me doubts about you. Carl Emley Jr., a young Hollywood producer and son of the founder of Universal Pictures, saw the box office potential of the Dracula property and wanted the film to follow the runs of Hunchback and Phantom. Since a version of the play was already quite popular on Broadway, Lemley and the filmmakers used the script for the show, as well as Nosferatu, for inspiration. Hamilton Dean was an actor and manager and the co-author of the first authorized portrayal of Dracula, the stage play. Dean would be the one to create the modern idea of Dracula, taking inspiration from more vaudevillian personas than supernatural ones. With all of the parts cast, save for the titular role, when it would come down to who would play the immortal curse to drink human blood, well, finding him would prove to be difficult. Well, what was your first mystery play? Well, Dracula. Oh, did the role depress you? Very much. Haunted me. I often dreamed of the dead. 
In the morning when I woke up, I was tired and depressed. Born Bella Ferenik de Soblasco on October 20th, 1882, in the Kingdom of Hungary. The man who used the stage name Bella Lugosi was already an established actor of the stage and screen by the time he starred as Dracula in the Broadway adaptation. In addition to the successful Broadway run, the production toured the U.S., eventually wrapping up in Los Angeles. Lugosi decided to stay in California to try his hand at American film roles, but when few came, he returned to the role of Dracula for another West Coast tour of the play. Lugosi was known for his very thick accent, like you heard in the prior clip, which made it difficult for him to find roles as anything other than a villain, known as a heavy at the time, or as an exotic chic, both roles of which were far and few between. When Lemley began searching for the Dracula in the film, he didn't want Lugosi, and instead considered several other performers, including Lon Chaney. Luckily for Lugosi, his proximity to Los Angeles at the time worked in his favor, and he was able to lobby hard for the role, eventually winning Lemley and the other executives over, securing him a measly $500 a week for a role that he had already made quite famous. Initially planned as a lavish, big-budget film, the stock market crash of 1929 had effectively done away with that possibility. To save money, Dracula was shot simultaneously using the same sets and props, though different actors, as the Spanish-language version of the film. This was done to allow Spanish-speaking audiences to get a Hollywood sound film that was released in their own language, as dubbing was still in its infancy at the time. The English crew would shoot in the morning, and the Spanish crew would shoot after hours. The English production of Dracula was quite a disorganized affair. Director Todd Browning, who had made his name directing many of Lon Chaney's successful silent films, was struggling to adapt to sound films, which is apparent in the many silent elements in the resulting Dracula. Most of the credit for the success of the film historically goes to the cinematographer Carl Freund, who according to actor David Manners, who played Jonathan Harker, was the true director of the film and couldn't even recall Browning ever being present on set. Before the release of the film, Lugosi feared that the part he had lobbied so hard for would typecast him. He reportedly rejected the chance to play the character in yet another tour of the play, stating, quote, No, not at any price. When I am through with this picture, I hope to never hear of Dracula again. I cannot stand it. I do not intend that it shall possess me. Lugosi would play Dracula one more time on film. He'd also play the character on stage again. And Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein in 1948, though his presence in the monster movies was far from over. Dracula premiered on February 12, 1931 in New York, and a number of audience members were reported to have fainted in the theater, though this was probably just a publicity ploy by the studio to attract audience members. The marketing seemed to work. As within two days of the film opening nationwide, the New York Roxy Theater had already sold 50,000 tickets, a $700,000 profit. What's the matter now? You know that person you said that there's no such person? Yes. I think he's in there, in person. I was reading a sign over here, this one down here, yeah. Dracula's Legend. All of a sudden I heard... <laughs> 
That's the wind. It should get oiled. Listen, stop reading this thing. That's a lot of phony baloney to fool McDougal's customers. Now fold up that canvas and get busy. Come on. Dracula can change himself at will into a vampire bat flying about the countryside. Flying. With the success of the film, Universal released six more films featuring Dracula. Dracula's Daughter in 1936, Son of Dracula following in 1943, House of Frankenstein in 1944, House of Dracula in 1945, and Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein in 1948. Bela Lugosi was never able to shake the image, or the voice, of Dracula and spent the remainder of his career playing supernatural baddies. When Universal changed hands in 1936, Lugosi found himself knocked down a peg, literally, when he was reassigned to the B-Horror Film Unit before being let go altogether when horror movies started making less and less money at the box office. Lugosi fell on hard times financially and had to borrow money to cover the hospital bills when his only son was born. Lugosi's career got a second wind when a theater started showing double features of Dracula and Frankenstein in Los Angeles, offering Lugosi the opportunity to appear in person for the crowd. The reinvigorated interest in Lugosi caught the eye of Universal, who rehired him. Lugosi played other famous monster movie characters, including Frankenstein's monster and Igor. He also appeared in The Wolfman as the werewolf that gives the titular character his accursed bite. At the end of the 1940s, Lugosi's career was in yet another decline, a decline it never came out of. His last A-list film was playing Dracula in Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein. He would continue working in low-budget, forgettable films, as well as the occasional stage production of Dracula. He would spend his final years making films with infamous director Ed Wood, known for making terrible films and considered by some to be the worst director of all time, at least as of 1980 when he was given the title. Lugosi passed away in his Los Angeles apartment in 1956 from a heart attack. At the behest of his son and wife, Lugosi was buried in one of his cloaks from Dracula. According to legend, during Lugosi's funeral procession, a ghostly presence took control of the hearse so Lugosi could drive past his favorite cigar shop one last time. Mr. Harkey, you will help me? If it's at all possible. But tell me, why is Count Dracula keeping you prisoner? I... I cannot tell you that. But if I'm to help you, I must know. I'm sorry. It's not possible. You make it very difficult for me. After all, I'm a guest here. If I'm to help you, I must have a reason. A reason? You ask for a reason? Is it not reason enough that he keeps me locked up in this house? Holds me against my will? You can have no idea what an evil man he is. What terrible things he does. I could not... Dare not try to leave on my own. He would find me again, I know. But with you to help me, I would have a chance. Oh, you must help me. You must. You 
for my only hope. You must. I'll help you. I promise. Please don't distress yourself. Thank you. Thank you. Spoiler alert. She was a vampire. Universal would not be the only studio to have a successful string of Dracula films. British production company Hammer Films released a series of nine films starring Christopher Lee as Dracula and Peter Cushing as Dr. Van Helsing. Christopher Lee's portrayals made your contributions to the modern image of Dracula, and in turn future interpretations of vampires, was the addition of fangs and red eyes, elements which were featured in the novel but not in the Universal films. Obviously, the red eyes weren't possible as the Universal films were in black and white. A unique element in the Hammer films also is that Dracula is largely silent, save for some hissing. Lee, without having seen any prior portrayals, based his performance of Dracula on his interpretation of the character from within the book. In an interview in Leonard Wolfe's book, A Dream of Dracula, Lee stated that he believed he'd found something within the pages of the novel that had never been seen on screen before, that the character was more, quote, heroic, erotic, and romantic. Dracula doesn't want to live, but he's got to. He doesn't want to go on existing as the undead, but he has not choice. Screenwriter Jimmy Sangster made a significant amount of changes shifting Mina's husband from Jonathan Harker to Arthur Holmwood, and dropping characters, most notably Renfield, completely out of the film. Van Helsing was made younger and English, and Dracula's voyage to England is swapped from a sea voyage to a short hearse ride. Gone was Dracula's shape-shifting ability for the sake of, quote, realism, wanting, according to Sangster, to get rid of anything that, quote, made the film seem more like a fairy tale than it needed to be. Director Terence Fisher made another contribution to the Dracula film persona, amplifying the sexual elements in the story, equating the action of biting a victim as an erotic experience. The first film was both a critical and commercial success, spawning eight sequels. Lee would play Dracula in six out of the eight. His second outing was in the third film of the series, Dracula, Prince of Darkness. Despite dialogue written for the character, Lee did not speak, save for a few hisses. He refused to do anything more. Lee would eventually become disillusioned with the direction the franchise went in, and in addition to being concerned about typecasting, quit the franchise after the satanic rites of Dracula. Lee wasn't done with Dracula playing him several times in international adaptations of the film, including a Spanish-Italian-German-British Count Dracula in 1970, and voiced the character decades later in 2012's Frankenweenie. Count Dracula, we haven't actually met. Uh, this is... Uh... Yes, Jonathan Harker, my new English solicitor. I have enjoyed our correspondence. And I too, I must say. I must thank you for finding me an extraordinary house here in Whitby. It's a pleasure. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I don't see how anyone, except possibly Milo Renfield, could spend even a day at Carfax Abbey. A house, Miss Seward, cannot be made habitable in a day. And after all, how few days go to make up a century. Sorry, I don't understand. I am of an old family. 
To live in a new house would be impossible for me. Universal finally got their big-budget version of Dracula in 1979. Once again based on both the stage play and the book, the film starred Frank Langella. This Dracula was sexy, dominant, and aggressive. Langella also portrayed the character as vulnerable, not evil, and capable of falling in love. Langella didn't want to look like Christopher Lee or Lugosi, opting instead for a younger, more suave-looking Dracula. Stoker's Dracula was never sexy, like this portrayal and others that would follow it. The novel, rather, portrayed a decrepit old man who got younger and younger as he drank human blood. There were other Dracula adaptations in the 70s as well, including Nosferatu the Vampire, made as an homage to the 1922 film rather than the novel. German-born Werner Herzog believed that the original version of Nosferatu was the best film to come out of Germany and wanted to make his own. Herzog started the production of the film the day the novel entered public domain. The film was shot in both English and German to appeal to audiences on both sides of the pond, and Dracula was portrayed by Klaus Kinski in makeup akin to the 1922 film. Additionally, Herzog added sexual elements present in later adaptations of the film, especially when it came to his leading lady. Vampires do exist. And this one we fight, this one we face, has the strength of 20 or more people. And you can testify for that, Mr. Harker. But he can also control the meaner things of life, the bat, the rodent, the wolf. He can appear as mist, as vapor fog and vanish at will. Now all these things Dracula can do, but he is not free. He must rest in the sacred earth of his homeland to gain his evil power. Dracula went into a deep sleep for a few decades before being reawakened by director Francis Ford Coppola in 1992. While shooting Godfather Part 3, actress Winona Ryder gave the script to Coppola on her last day on set. Written by James V. Hart, the script integrated elements of Vlad Tepes' history whilst introducing a love story between Mina and Dracula not present in the source material. Coppola brought his intensity to the set and the material, having actor Gary Oldman, who played Dracula, say, according to actress Sadie Frost, who played Lucy, quote, very unrepeatable things. Oldman also, in order to get into character, kept a coffin in his garage and was known to be incredibly intense on set in general. Coppola refused to use modern CGI, instead wanting to implement camera tricks and effects that were around at the time of the publishing of the novel. Rear projection, for example, was used instead of composition. Rear projection is exactly what it sounds like. A projector projects an image onto a screen while filming versus today with compositing, where a computer adds the image on in post. This is what green or blue screens are used for. Coppola also did away with the classic look of Dracula. Gone was the pale face, widow's peak, and long black cape. Instead, Dracula was adorned at first in a flowing gold gown and eventually donned more Victorian, steampunk-esque garb. Coppola's adaptation was also the only one to include character Quincy Morris, the American cowboy. Keanu Reeves, who played Jonathan Harker, was lambasted for his portrayal of the character. The young actor at the time, according to critics, didn't have the gravitas against Oldman or Anthony Hopkins, who played Van Helsing. 
His and Ryder's accents, London British, were also not big hits with critics, whom believed the two Americans weren't quite up to snuff. If you've ever seen it, you know they're not wrong. Despite these critiques and the slightly hellish set, overall the film was a critical and modest financial success that would go on to win three Technical Academy Awards, the only Dracula adaptation to do so. 1992 was the last year Dracula the novel was seriously adapted for the big screen, though there have been several iterations in the last 28 years. Mel Brooks released Dracula, Dead and Loving It, in 1995, which parodies the entire Dracula imagery. There was a straight-to-DVD version called Dracula Reborn, in which Dracula lives in Los Angeles, and Dracula 3D, a 2012 Dario Argento film, which screened at the Cannes Film Festival. There was also 2014's Dracula Untold, mixing Vlad the Impaler with the Dracula myth, as well as some new original elements. Dracula has gone through many transformations since he first frightened audiences in 1897. While Stoker's version of the vampire myth has transcended from its source material, being reimagined, redone, warped, and bastardized, I'm looking at you on that last one, Twilight, the legend of Dracula remains the apex predator, the creature of the night. What sweet music he makes. I'm having serious doubts about this whole vampire theory. For heaven's sake, who in all of England, by the very furthest stretch of the imagination, could possibly be a vampire? Count Dracula. Well, maybe him. Oh, Count Dracula. Just talking about you. Favorably, of course. And that's going to do it for this week. As always, there will be corresponding images posted on all social media, as well as some recommended viewing in the show notes. Availability of where to stream these films is based on the American market. International availability may vary. Also in the show notes are my sources. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media on Twitter at Tinsel underscore Factory, Instagram at Tinsel Factory Pod, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or email me at TinselFactoryPod at gmail.com. Did I get something wrong? Email me and let me know, and I'll correct it on a future episode. I'm relying on word of mouth to grow this podcast for the time being. So if you like what you've heard, please subscribe wherever you are listening. Give the podcast a five-star review and share it with your friends. Next week, we're covering Frankenstein's Monster, the only major movie monster to come from a novel written by a woman. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap. Out from his coffin, Transylvania twist. It's now the mash. It's now the monster mash. The monster mash. And it's a graveyard smash. It's now the mash.